Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property. I'm Peter Switzer. This show goes out every Thursday night on our YouTube channel and it's meant to give you the insights so you can be competitive when you're trying to make some money in real estate. And so we go looking for the legends of real estate, people who've had a great reputation for learning stuff and sharing that information with people just like you. On tonight's show, we've got John McGrath, the founder of McGrath Estate, and a porter uh, from Suburbanite, and she'll show us some property insights that she's learned along the way. I think they're very, very helpful for someone who wants to make money as a property investor. And finally, Andrew Ballantyne, who's head of research at JLL, looking at investing in the commercial market in Australia. That's the show for tonight. John McGrath, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. John, um, before we start talking about your take on what's going on in the real estate market, there's a bit of a debate about, you know, can we believe the figures out there on house prices? And there's two, two groups sort of having a, a crack at each other in a very general kind of way, but it seems to be a statistical argument. And what I want to know, because you're actually at the coalface mm. with your team, are house prices rebounding? Yeah, I think they are. I think um, we saw it, and every market, as we've spoken about before, mm. Pete's different. But let's say we took the, the, the core Sydney market. I think Sydney went up about 75% in the last cycle. Mm. And I think it averaged about a 15% down during the last two years correction. Mm. Now, what we've seen in the last six months is a strong resurgence. I think it's probably made back half of that 15% correction. I think that the really, there's a flight to quality. Mm. The really good properties are being sought out and fought for. Mm. I think the investment type product, there's been no change in value. It's kind of just sitting there at, mm. the, at the sort of level it reached. But I think we've seen a five, seven percent bounce back in the better quality property in the last six months. Now, mm. that has been amplified, I think, by a shortage of listings. Mm. If we had normalized volume of listings, we're about 30 to 40 percent in some markets lower than traditional volumes. Now, that has exaggerated where the market's at. But I think there's genuine demand. I mean, we've had interest rates dropping to now new, new record lows. We've spoken about record lows in the past. <clears throat> we, we've, we've had, um, the banks are getting a little bit better with lending. That was a real problem yeah, for the last That was years. a big problem. You know, it, it was probably the major driver. I think the market had, had overcooked itself a little bit. Yeah. It probably had to come back. But the banks then at the same time, simultaneously with the Royal Commission, they just made it almost impossible for good quality lending to take place. Yeah. So, you know, there was a few things happening. Now, that's, that's eased up a little bit. Interest rates have come back a little bit. I think there's still a degree of nervousness out there. Mm. I mean, you know, you look around the globe and you've got Brexit and you've got Hong Kong and China and you've got America and China. You've got some things that I think are causing some people to just be a little bit cautious. Mm. But nonetheless, I mean, we saw at Barangaroo the other day, $140 million sale reported. Mm. You know, take that aside, that's, that's a, a unique situation. But we're seeing mm. five to $10 million probably as strong as I've seen it for three or four years right yeah. now. But you are in most suburbs of Sydney, for example, aren't yeah. you? Most yeah. yeah. And so um, the argument some people put is that, oh, it's only the good quality suburbs are doing well, all the other ones are struggling. Is that an unfair generalisation? That's an unfair generalisation. I think I was talking to some colleagues the other day from Campbelltown, mm. another group from Penrith, mm. and they were saying their days on market are very short. They're not saying the prices are going through the roof, but they're mm. saying there's strong demand. They've seen a little uptick in prices. Yeah. So I think it, it's pretty much Sydney-wide, but again, the, the investment-style stock, especially units, which mm. have come under fire with, the, uh, with new building issues over the last 12 months, 
that market is probably the softest. But mm. you look at houses or higher quality or best locations, the market's mm. very strong. Okay. Um, you, you know, I always depart from the questions I'm supposed to ask you, but I have to ask you I'm this. surprised you got through the first <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah. but, but also, given the fact what you're talking about the apartments, do you think there's actually some buying opportunity? Because they're all being branded as being potentially structural problems, potential cladding problems, but there must be some great apartments which would be during a boom at the peak end of pricing, which is because people are scared, the price is actually probably okay. Look, I think so. In the main, most of the properties that are in that investment stock, let's call them, they're not triple A grade stock. They're kind of more the B grade stock. And, yeah. and I've always said to people, if you can afford to buy the best suburbs and the best buildings, you know, buy above median, do it. Mm because that's always going to be in demand. Yeah. Having said that, I think, you know, I saw something just this morning and it said there was 37 buildings in Sydney where it's kind of like the red lights flashing, there's cladding that needs immediate attention. They're talking about 50 to $100,000 per unit uh, holder mm. to uh, for special levies. Mm. Uh, and that's going to hurt. Mm. There's going to be some people that can't, don't have the money, can't mm. borrow the money, mm. and are going to have to sacrifice, which is a horrible situation. But again, it may represent opportunities for people. Mm. But do your research. Tell us about the house of the future, John. Well, a, a couple of things, Pete. I think that it's getting smaller. I mean, a few things. Households are getting smaller. There's mm. less people per household. Mm. So uh, as a demographic group, it's shrinking. Two is I think people, the, the, the feeling out there, you know, it's environmental, it's the feeling of the moment is people don't want waste. Um, they're looking to just, you know, have enough to live in, but no extravagance and waste. And the third thing, of course, is Sydney, Melbourne, the big cities in particular are getting so expensive, you can't afford to have more than you need, really. So I think there's a few trends, some social, some financial, that are causing people to kind of downsize. And we're seeing this in some developments. Uh, in the very top-end developments, some of the apartments are getting bigger because people are choosing apartments over houses. But generally across the board, we're seeing a lot more one-bedders being designed into new buildings, mm. one and twos versus two and threes. Mm. Ones that were often seen as you know, the, the, the poor man's or poor woman's you know, get out, that's all I could get into, and even banks were tough to get money out of. Is that changing now? Yes, it is. If we put a block of 100 up today, you'd probably find the one-bedders arguably would go the fastest. Mm. Uh, investors, self-managed right. super funds, as you know, are, are keen on, on one-bedroom units. Um, First-home buyers, that's all they can afford because one-bedder in, in the centre of Sydney now is six to 800000 in that mm. price range. So, uh, yeah, I think they're very popular. You're right, they, was always, they were the hardest ones to sell mm. before. Now, as long as they're the right size, you know, they're above 50 square metres, which they generally are, so the banks don't mind lending on them. I, I think they're hot property at the moment. Mm. Why is there so little property being listed? The market's getting <coughs> hot, people are showing up to auctions. Why wouldn't the people who were trying to sell two years ago and couldn't sell, why aren't they putting their, their property on the market That's, Yeah, now? it's counterintuitive because mm. typically when there's been periods in the past since I've been in real estate, Pete, um, of low stock, it's because the market's soft mm. and people just say, look, I'm not gonna sell now. Mm. Now it's the market's as strong as I've seen it for a few years. I think a few things. Um, number one is, this is sort of self-fulfilling. There's just no stock for sale. So people say, look, I can't find anything. So why am I gonna sell? Because I'm just gonna sit here, I won't be able to find anything. I might miss the market if it goes again. So you know, when there's a lack of stock, it actually creates more of a lack of stock. Mm. So I think um, you know, that is one of the big problems. The other one is, the other major one for me is, transaction costs have gone up significantly. So 
six years ago, if you were selling a median property in Sydney, you were probably selling a property for seven or eight hundred thousand. You're buying one for one point two. Transaction costs were a certain level. Now your median property might be up around 1.2, 1.3, and you're buying something for 1.7, 1.8, because people typically invest about 50% more, unless they're downsizing, 50% yeah. more each time. So, you know, stamp duty on 1.8, $70,000, you've got <laughs> selling fees on 1.2, you know, sort of 25, 30,000. So a lot of people now are having to spend 100,000 just to make a move. And, you know, you've got the block on television and people saying, wow, we can renovate, we can extend. You know, they're getting savvy about uh, making renovations and, and changes. And it's getting more and more expensive to actually make the move. Hmm. So, I, look, for an agent, obviously that's not an ideal situation, but it goes beyond agency because the activities that generally happen for people in their lives when they're moving houses are well beyond just buying and selling the house. There's renovations, there's extensions, there's buying cars, there's a whole range of things, investing some of the overage if you're downsizing. So I think from an economic perspective, it's actually going to impact way more than just real estate agents. It is going to have an economic effect. But the problem is governments are not going to get rid of stamp duty. Um, capital gains tax is the other one. I was having dinner with some people the other night and they said, we were thinking of selling our investment, but by the time we looked at the changeover costs and then we looked at what it's going to cost us in capital gains tax, yeah. we said, why yeah. would we bother? Yeah. You know, they're going to be stuck with a couple hundred thousand capital gains tax bill and $100,000 in stamp duty and agent's fees. And they thought, well, we'll just leave it in the one we've got. Mm. And just live off the income. Yeah. Uh, John, <coughs> we're seeing a lot of older people downsizing into apartments. Is this mm. something you've thought about? Yeah, look, I think it is. People do like the vertical village. They like mm. the idea of getting a lift. You go upstairs, there's a concierge that looks over, there's a cafe in the basement, there's bike racks, there's pools. There's a gymnasium, hairdressers, all those sort of things. So I think that lifestyle, which is very international, of course, mm. it's been happening in other big cities around the world for a long time. I think that's definitely here to stay. In fact, the other day I was up at uh, our office in Gosford and uh, they're about to build a 300, well, a developer's building a 300 unit, which will be the first Gee. major high-rise tower from a, of a residential nature in Gosford. And I think it'll be popular. Having said that, there are a lot of people, and, and empty nesters are some of them, Pete, where... They kind of, they want to go from a house to an apartment, but they don't want to be in a block of two or 300. They, you know, they wouldn't mind being in a, in a cluster of townhomes or maybe a low rise and older style apartments. And especially with the building issues now, a lot mm. of people are saying, well, older style might be a lot safer mm. than something's been built in the last 10 or 20 years. Yeah. If it stood the test of time for 50 or 60 years, it might be happy days. So I think there, there's, there's going to be a, a market for vertical villages, but again, a flight to quality. People are not going to risk their hard-earned money on unknown builders, unknown developers. They want to go to someone who's actually got a track record that will stand behind their product. So if there were to be any problem, they know they'll fix it. Uh, overseas buyers, are they coming back? Yeah, I think uh, it's funny. I, was, had a, I went to Melbourne today and, and uh, had a lunch with someone who's a developer and said they're now starting to get a lot more overseas inquiry. We're seeing it anecdotally. Mm. Uh, in fact, a couple of people said to me last week they're looking at taking a project over to Hong Kong again, partly because there's an overseas Could be demand. a few people wanting to leave Hong Kong. I, I think that, well, that's the other thing. The expats yeah. over there and, and, the, and the locals over there looking to, at very least, invest elsewhere in case things get worse, yeah. but even looking at to live over here. The other thing is the Australian dollar is so low, there's a 25 30% <coughs> built-in discount. So you've got to balance that up. There's an 8% in most states, there's an 8% additional foreign ownership tax but you're getting a 30% discount on the currency 
and there's some problems overseas and whether you see Brexit as a problem or not, or Hong Kong, China, but there's certainly a lot of nervous people saying, maybe a time to buy something in Australia just in case. Yeah. So I think over the next couple of years, hopefully I'd, like, I'd love to see the state governments either dramatically reduce or eliminate that tax because I think for brand new off-plan apartments, it's really hurt the market. Mm. Um, you know, having overseas investors sort of shoot away. So uh, hopefully the state governments will see merit in, in, in inviting overseas capital back into the country. Okay. Um, you're always argued that buying in the inner ring mm -hmm. of a CBD has a lot of potential. So how far out should people go, say, in Sydney and Melbourne? Well, I think, you know, 20 kilometres from the major CBDs are always going to be where the heat is mm -hmm. and, and on the coastal or waterways. Yeah. That, that, that I think every time you and I talk, this comes up and I think the theme will continue forever. Mm. Having said that, there's a lot of infrastructure happening. You look at Sydney in particular, you look at North Connects, you look at West Connects, you know, you look at the North Metro Link, and all of those infrastructure where there's been billions invested are making certain suburbs in the country closer to the city. So Parramatta, I went there the other day, it took me 20 minutes quicker or less time to get there than previously, mm. and the West Connects is not even finished, it's only mm. half finished. Mm. When that's finished, you'll be able to get from Parramatta to the airport in 25 minutes. Mm. That was once a 60 minute journey. Yeah. So I think that, it, you know, again, look at the infrastructure and not everyone's in Sydney, but wherever you're at, look at where the infrastructure and then just make some logical conclusions. What are the pockets of real estate that have been maybe neglected in the past that are going to be easier to access the CBDs oh. and, and invest there? So John, is there anything else you think people should understand about the, the markets that, that, that's going on right now? Given the rebound, how would you give advice to someone who's thinking well, about buying? Well, we said it before, Pete. If you're selling, if you're thinking of selling, it's probably a really good window of opportunity because there's high demand and low stock. As the stock normalises, which I expect and hope it will, let's say 2020 sometime, because births, deaths, marriages, all divorces, all these things continue happening, and they're all drivers. And they make people have to. So eventually, you'll you have to find a more normal situation. So I think as the stock goes up some of the prices, the heat will come out. Mm. But I think we've, we've about found the level right now for the big cities. I mean, obviously East Coast is, is doing better than Darwin and Perth, which are a bit flat, those markets. But uh, I, I think that if you're buying for the long term, and you should always buy for the long term, don't, don't buy for two or three years. A lot of speculators came out of the woods. Mm. You know, this is, it's a 10 year game. If you buy for the 10 year game, you're probably gonna double your money. Historically it has. Mm. So that's kind of a good investment. You can do it pretty safely through property. Tim McGrath, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. I'm going to catch up with Anna Porter, who's the founder of Suburbanite. She's a property advisor, and of course, she's executive director of her own company. Anna, thanks for joining us. Welcome. So tell us about what Suburbanite does. So we provide strategic property advice. So we help uh, individuals, so time poor professionals invest for their future, maybe only one or two investment properties or a whole portfolio, yeah. all the way through to what we call corporate or business to business investors, which looks like clubs, pubs, golf clubs, not for profits on their property strategy. So we sit at sort of two ends of the market yeah. from individuals to more robust strategies. So, and I guess a lot of people love property, but they don't really have expertise. I guess you fill the gap for those sorts of people, I, I, I presume? 
Th that's exactly right. Mm. So I started uh, the business way back when I was a property valuer, which mm. I was a valuer for about 10 years, and found my weekends were getting absorbed by helping people invest and buy property because they didn't know what to do. Yeah. You know, they'd say, oh, you know, they'd talk to friends and friends of friends at barbecues and get the wrong advice. You know, there's always a Brian at the barbecue who bought a property in 1983 who's now an expert. Mm. Don't listen to Brian. He doesn't know what he's talking about, but he'll, he'll tell you everything. Mm. And people were just getting confused and overwhelmed. And, and a lot of people realised they just didn't have that knowledge to make the right decisions when it came to investing outside their own backyard in particular. Mm. Yeah. So doing it for free on weekends decided there's obviously a market there to help people and, and you know, actually mm. earn some money off it. So yeah. that's how it all began. I find when people ask me about investing in property, that they're very much like a lot of small business people, and that is, they don't really plan to fail, but they fail to plan. That's and that's where I guess you would come in, because you, you would have the processes and systems that have been tested over time. That a, a, a young person or even a, an older person who's got little experience in buying can make a whole lot of mistakes. They can, and a small mistake in property can be a huge financial impact. Yeah. You know, I've met someone only recently that uh, they bought an off-the-plan property. At the time, they could get the finance. They missed a few steps in the due diligence process that we would have done quite differently. Yeah. Took some risks we wouldn't have taken. Ended up not able to settle. Lost seventy thousand dollars. I mean, right. that's one small mistake, but it's a seventy thousand dollar outcome. That's yeah. just too great a risk to take. You you brought up buying off the plan. Uh, are there any circumstances when you say, yeah, fine, do that? But are there most circumstances where you say, too risky? Most circumstances are too risky. Mm. So uh, the, the risk generally is around being able to settle because you get your finance approved or considered, probably more would be the right way to say it, your finance considered and assessed when you go into the contract, yep. you put down your 10% deposit. And even if it is only 5%, you're still on the hook for 10%. Yeah. Then a year or two passes and you're buying you know, a product that's a little bit unknown. Because, you know, I say to people, would you buy a product where you know, the owner's going to say to you or the seller, you know, it, it might have problems and faults, it actually probably will. You don't know what it looks like, you don't know how it's going to be made and I'll just draw you a picture of it and that's all you get and you don't even know what it's going to be worth when you get it. But most people would say no. And, and there's no warranty. That's what buying off the plan is. When you get a picture drawn of it, that's all you really get. So they're going into a very unknown situation where their finances aren't guaranteed because it gets reassessed 90 days out from settlement. And that is the only point in time the bank will give you that level of guarantee or confidence you can definitely borrow the money to buy it. Yeah. Even if, well, no matter what they said a year or two ago when it was starting the build process. There's a lot of risk there. If your circumstances change, if your know, wife falls pregnant, you lose your job, you change jobs, lending changes, which yeah. has happened a in this environment. house price collapse yeah, and is, banks are saying no. Yeah, there is so many risks. So. The right circumstances is if you're a cash buyer, if you don't need to borrow the money or you have a backup plan or you can borrow it off the in-laws if it goes wrong, mm. something like that is the circumstances where it might be warranted if you still take those due diligence steps to make sure that you're not going to release the deposit to the developer and make sure that you're not going to buy something that's going to be a, a, a massive defects or problems. They've yeah. got to have a reputational background as well. I came across a problem which I never expected from a person I know. Um, she was engaged. Uh, her and her husband, or husband-to-be, um, put a deposit down on a property that hadn't been finished. And when it was finished, they were happy they moved in. But then they decided to break up before the marriage mm. and they wanted to sell their property, but there were still 10 more properties to, to um, sell and they weren't able to sell it until the other 10 were sold. 
Now that, that was like in the, the fine print, but they never saw it. Yeah. Is this a usual condition of a development? That can be quite common. And also not being able to resell before settlement as well. Mm. Um, what the developer's trying to safeguard against there is people undercutting their mm. prices yeah. and devaluing the, the, the development. Yeah. We see a lot of instances as well where the first sale out of the development is often not always legitimate. It's to a friend or a cousin, or there's a big cashback in the background. So yeah. the contract price might be a million, but the cashback on settlement might be 200,000. Yeah. So there's a lot of little tricks and, and things for young players to get caught out in, in that space. And mm. I think that's particularly what I struggle with with Off The Plan is we go into that situation with more questions than answers and getting the answers is so hard. Mm. And you can never really get all the answers. So that's where the risk sits there. Mm. Um, and I think when we want to buy a property or we want to invest, we want more answers than questions. So there is risk, not to say you shouldn't always do it. I've heard some great stories where people have made a lot of money. Yeah. You just gotta be very careful and do a lot of research around it. And mm. you know, th those situations aren't uncommon. Let's talk generally, uh, what are the big mistakes that you know, young, young players get trapped when it comes to buying a property? How long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll bring you back. I'll bring you back. But give us the the, the, the ones that if your your son or daughter was saying, "I'm going out to buy a, a place at auction," mm -hmm. let's say auction. What what would you say that other checklist issues they should be across? Yeah. So. If it's a home to live in, they're probably not as concerned about what's happening in the market if it's going up or down. If it's an investment, you have to get some context and advice and research around the market. Yep. You could invest in the wrong market for starters. That's sort of the big picture. Getting down to little picture, it's looking at what could go wrong with that property if you buy it. So is it in a flood zone? Check your environmental hazards. I've met so many people that have bought properties where they've found out after the fact that it's in either a flood zone or a bushfire zone, the first insurance bill they get can be $12,000 and they just mm. can't manage those costs. Mm. So, so in a sense, if you were going to buy a property, would you... Um, be wise to go to an insurance company to see what kind of premium you're going to be charging. I always do. Good, yep. Yeah, because they have the information. I they? always do. Yeah. Yep, you check your contract and get that information, or get a solicitor too, yeah. and then take that information to the insurance companies. Mm. Find that out. You know, there's some properties that you know lenders won't lend on, insurers won't insure on. So mm. you've got to know this before you go into making a million or $2 million purchase. Yeah. Um, so check on that ground level environmental issues. Uh, check out the neighbours. So you know, find out, door knock if you have to, find out about the area. All too often we hear people move in and find out the caravan park down the road takes in the local jailbirds or, mm. you know, the Those lady... Angels yeah, sure. <laughs> exactly. The neighbours know this stuff. So yeah. have those conversations and learn about the area a bit. Go there at the time of day the agent doesn't want you to be there. So they'll hold the, hold the open when it's got the best sun, yeah. the, the lowest traffic, the quietest time of day. If it's near a school zone, show up at three o'clock and see what's happening. If people are parking in your driveway and blocking your driveway and the neighbours are having arguments, and that might be fine for you, but you need to know that before you go into the purchase. Mm. Go there in the evening during peak hour, go there in the morning and see if there's traffic noise, if there's aeroplanes overhead. Yeah. Get a feel for it. You know, it sounds a bit stalkerish, but spend a bit of time out the front of the area because it is a big investment. Well, you're going to live there, aren't you? You are. And I think a lot of people get rushed into these decisions. I've found, we did a bit of research probably about a year or so ago now. We found more people spent more time in a motor vehicle that they're going to purchase with an average $30,000 price tag than they would in a home they're going to purchase yeah. with an average $1.5 million price tag. Yeah. Isn't that scary? It is. Um, and my biggest advice is don't skip any of the due diligence steps. No matter how much the agents tells you you might want to, you know, have to rush, mm. there's another buyer. 
we've got to remember the agents there to look after the seller. That's their prime mm. job. And even though they might be the nicest person in the world and you want to have a barbecue with them, mm. they're not there to look after your best interests. So get your solicitors on board. Make sure the valuations are done. Don't enter unconditional contracts without having all your pieces of the puzzle in place mm. and get the right team around you. Um, is it essential to have a building inspection done? 100%. Pest, building, strata. Yeah. It's a strata report. Yeah. We often now go a bit above and beyond that and get electrical inspections, plumbing inspections, mm. and it can be the simplest thing that a tree root has grown through the plumbing, but it's an $8,000 bill the day you settle, and it, yeah. those things are expensive. So for a few hundred dollars, the due diligence is critical. I also usually don't rely on the pest and building reports that have been commissioned by the agent or the vendor. I've seen a lot, I'm not saying all agents do this, I'd like to think most don't, but I've seen a number of them where they have actually um, made negative pest and building reports disappear with things like termites in them yeah. and found ones that are a little softer in how they word it. Mm. So I'd still like to always get my own done. Yeah. The latest thing is meth reports. So oh, right. <laughs> a whole new frontier. Because it's hard to get out of your house if they've been cooking meth in the house. Yes, the cost to remediate is huge. It's not covered by insurance. Now, we don't always do that as standard process. We don't tend to buy in areas where it's as much warranted. There's some areas that you would definitely mm. want to get that done. It's a socioeconomic consideration as well. Um, but if you want to be really diligent, the, the remediation cost can be big. So it's you know another few hundred dollars. To a friend get. of mine bought a place and he didn't know that there was an, a, an easement on, on a, uh, a, a sewerage line or mm. something like that. Um, do you need to go to council to find out what kind of easements might be on your property? So your conveyancer should be able to do that okay. for you. They can do all the checks around the land, what you can use, what you can't use, zoning. Yeah. You know, And if there is a big easement through the backyard, it may not matter if you don't want to put a pool in or you don't yeah. want to extend, but if your plans are to extend and put a pool in, yeah, it's pretty critical. Yeah. Uh, and it can make it costly or, or not even an option. Mm. So it is about getting the right conveyancer on board that does a lot of property transactions in that area and yeah. understands you know, the details of what council will reveal. Does an agent have to tell you there's an easement on the property? <laughs> that, that's a big question in itself. So the agent has to tell you anything that would affect value of the property. So what the agent's answer to that would be, it's all in the contract, right. so I don't need to actually yeah. walk you through and it. And it will be in the contract. And it will be in the okay. contract, but oh. who knows how to read a contract, really? Mm. Like, you're buying your first property, people don't understand mm. how important getting that interpreted is. Mm. It's not a matter of just signing it, it's having an interpretation of it. Okay, let's, let's be, let me be nasty. <laughs> uh, do, do solicitors often miss these sort of things when they read them? I personally haven't come across a solicitor that has missed these things, mm. thankfully, but we're very picky with who we use. Yeah. Um, there are some new models out there that I've seen popping up that are very DIY solicitor or $200 yeah. for a full conveyance. Yeah. Now, we spend on average about $2,000 per conveyance when we help our clients purchase or when I do my mm. own conveyancing. I don't consider it an area I want to save a dollar. It's an area I want to get the right advice. So are the DIY models or the really cheap sort of um, online versions of conveyancing um, satisfactory? I wouldn't personally run to use them. Mm. Not to say I've had an experience that they're not good enough, but if you're going to find a mistake and you're only paying $200, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that's the story you told me down the track. Anna, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. That's Anna Porter from Suburbanite. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you. So um, we're talking about 
the uncertain economic outlook yep. and how it's affecting the commercial and office property sector in Australia's CBDs. How's it working out? Well, Peter, the Australian office sector is intrinsically linked to the domestic economy. So we know GDP is below trend. We know the RBA's uh, loosening monetary policy to stimulate the economy. Yeah. I think the best analogy is actually the Australian labour market. If you looked at the most recent monthly statistics, we had an all-time high in the number of people in paid employment. Mm. That's a little bit like the Australian office sector. We reached an all-time high in the amount of space that's occupied mm. uh, over the September quarter. Mm. So the, the, the implication is that if you're employing people, they've got to go somewhere. And Ex therefore, it's good for offices. Ex exactly, Peter. And I think you can take that analogy a step further. While we're at an all-time record high in employment, we have seen unemployment increase over the past 12 months as mm. we've seen an increase in uh, labour force participation rate and mm. we've also seen an increase in the working age population. Mm. If you look at our measure of demand, which we call net absorption, uh, it was around 120,000 square metres over the past 12 months. Longer term average is around 230, 240. So we're growing below trend, mm. but we're still seeing positive growth come through. Mm. And it, it, when you see that the participation rate is rising and unemployment's going up, is it like not as worrying that if, if unemployment was rising and participation rate was yeah, falling? Yeah, I, I think what I'd be more concerned about, yeah, is that reduction in participation rate, but also seeing a real stall in employment growth. It's certainly slowed, mm. but to see it stall, and I think you also need to, similar to the office sector, you need to peel behind the headlines. There's parts of the Australian labour market where you're actually seeing job losses and mm. your parts which are seeing very strong growth. Yeah. And it's a bit like that when we look at the office sector as well. Okay, so which cities are seeing improving sentiment and why? And take us around the country looking at the various capital cities. Sure, Peter. Well, if we're talking about improving sentiment, we really fixate our attention towards Brisbane, Perth and Adelaide. Mm. And the first two, as we know, got hit pretty hard with mm. the end of the resource cycle. We had negative demand, we had very high vacancy, we had rents going backwards. Over the past 18 months, they've shown signs of stabilisation and signs of some growth coming through. So if we look at Brisbane specifically, Brisbane is benefiting from the South East Queensland infrastructure uh, pipeline, mm. and there's a strong tailwind coming through there. If you look at what we call prime grade assets, which are the better quality buildings in the city, vacancy rate in Brisbane is now at the lowest level since 2012. Mm, okay, so that's a very positive thing. Take it to Perth and you see similar observations on the demand side of the equation. We are seeing a little bit of growth from the resource sector, despite the volatility that we've seen in commodity prices, especially over the last six weeks. Mm. But we're also seeing a lot of organisations that were priced out of the Perth CBD between 2006 and 2012 start to come back. Mm. So ultimately they want to be based in the city. It helps with their employee retention and attraction strategies. However, when you look at what we call vacancy, it's still around 20% within the Perth market. So it's still a market that's still okay. got a long path to go towards recovery. The, the markets that have been strong for quite some time, Sydney and Melbourne, yes. you haven't touched on them yet. So are they getting to, to their dizzy limits or is there still potential for these markets? Oh, look, they're certainly approaching a cyclical peak in terms of the rental growth story. But I think when you look at the numbers, these are two of the strongest office markets in the world. We have vacancy in Melbourne at 3.7%. To give you an insight, we typically think of equilibrium somewhere between seven and nine. Gee. So Melbourne is one of the tightest markets in the world. Mm. Sydney's sitting at around four and a half percent and is also one of the tightest markets in the world. So although we're at that cyclical peak or moving towards, sorry, that cyclical 
cyclical peak from a rent perspective, mm. the occupancy fundamentals of those markets are still very strong. Is there a reason for that? Uh, one, because we are one of the most urbanised countries yep. in the world. And secondly, when you come here to do business, it's highly likely that international companies yep. will want to be in Sydney and or Melbourne. Yeah, look, that's, that's certainly fair. And if you look around where we're sitting today here in Sydney, you see a lot of multinational organisations from the investment banking community, from the tier one legal firms. Mm. The big growth that we've seen over the last four years has actually been NASDAQ listed companies opening up a presence here. So just recently, we saw Salesforce commit to a new building down in, in Circular Key Tower. That's mm. quite significant expansion. And we did a little bit of work a few months ago and looked and, and worked out that 53%, uh, sorry, 53 of the NASDAQ 100 now actually have a presence in Sydney, whether mm. that be the CBD or one of our metro markets. Mm. Very interesting. So looking at all the, your data on yep. office and commercial uh, properties, what does it tell you about the, the broader economy and its outlook? Look, I'm, my view is the office sector is very much a microcosm of corporate Australia and the broader economy. Because mm -hmm. if you think about the diversity of groups that occupy space within our CBD office markets, mm -hmm. we've touched on finance. Mm -hmm. You know, we've touched on the big professional services firms, whether that be lawyers, accountants, recruitment firms. We've touched on the growth in technology. That's a growth sector for the economy moving forward. And we've seen significant growth from multinational, but also domestic Australian technology firms as well. And increasingly, we're now seeing education users and health users occupying office space in, in larger quantities than they've done before. Mm. So you can get a very good read on the economy by going through each of those sectors. And very much like the domestic economy, some of them are growing, some of them are contracting. The overall growth rate is, a, is below trend, similar to the, similar to the Australian mm. economy. But it, it, given that, what's your best guess about where this economy is going? Do you think it's on the slide or it's sneaking up at a slow rate? Uh, I think it feels a bit like a muddle through at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I think I worry, look, especially if we're looking at Sydney, but also a lot of the office sectors, they're influenced by global sentiment. And there's a lot of potential exogenous risk factors that we look at. Mm -hmm. There was an article today that I read that said, Wall Street continues to be embarrassed by the China US trade war by continually misreading some of the signs around mm -hmm. there. So you're seeing the volatility in the equity markets and that flows through to corporate decision making. Mm -hmm. Investment in real estate is a longer term investment. You typically don't sign a lease for any less than five years. So you generally like to have a, some confidence mm. in terms of where your business, Good where the economy is going, where your business is going to be making that longer term commitment. Okay. And I, I know that um, a year or so ago, Centuria did something unusual, buying a, a property, a, a building in mm -hmm. Adelaide. Yes. And what they said was, this is what they thought was the best building in yes. Adelaide, and that's what I'm prepared to do. Yep. And it was a success for them. Yes, it's been very much result. so. And I, I noticed that you guys have a fairly positive thumbs up for Adelaide. Look, I think you can tell by my accent I'm not from here. I yeah. wonder if I don't suffer from the same sort of anchoring bias that, <laughs> that some people in Australia do. And Adelaide has been an underperformer. Mm. Well, South Australia has been an underperformer mm. and the Adelaide office market's been an underperformer for a longer period of time. So a lot of people look at it and say it's too small to be interesting mm. for us. But now you've actually got genuine growth drivers. So I think you need a, a fresh set of eyes when you look at the market. The Commonwealth of Australia released a white paper a few years ago and they talked about an unprecedented decade in defence spending. South mm. Australia is a big beneficiary yeah, of that true. and we're seeing that come through in the contractors. Mm. 
Uh, we've now got the announcement of Australia's first space agency that's headquartered in Adelaide, and we're now seeing that sort of flow through to sentiment. Not too mm. much in terms of take-up, but certainly sentiment around that being placed there. Mm. We've also got the growth in a lot of smaller technology companies, growth in education. Mm. So. I, I used to be based down in Melbourne when I first arrived in Australia and I used to talk about Melbourne's three abilities. It had livability, affordability and employability. Mm. Adelaide has two of those threes, livability and affordability. Mm. Increasingly, it's now starting to get affordability mm. and that's what it makes it interesting from a, a, an investment perspective. Yeah, and I think the, the company that won the Innovator of the Year, Solvit, I think it yeah. was, uh, comes from Adelaide. And he, and he was an American yep. who decided he wanted to bring up his family, um, uh, Matthew McCannovich. Yep, yep. Yeah. All right, mate, thanks for joining us on the program. No problem. Thank you for your time. Cheers. That's Andrew Ballantyne from JLL. Basically, the economic analysis is very interesting, macroeconomic analysis, and of course Peter's very entertaining. Uh, well, I come every year, or every twice a year, and I love it because I get so much information and I run my own super fund, so for me it's really, really good. It's been very, very informative. and. Uh, I must admit, some of these share fund managers, they're, they're quite funny. And uh, I think they've made it uh, such a pleasure to be here. So I've loved it. Uh, looking forward to doing something with my money and becoming rich. <laughs> Got a lot of people like who are very talented people in the industry. We are getting expert at one place. So that's one of the best things I've found here. And uh, I would like to thank Peter Sudja for organizing this for us. Just having the exposure into the market and looking at um, constructing a portfolio, so I think it'll be just a great experience, just you know, meeting a lot of people as well. Oh, I really enjoyed it because I came really make, uh, looking for you know some income stream um, because it's just not worthwhile for me to keep my money in the bank anymore and it's given me some really good ideas, you know, the options that are available there. So yeah, it's been really positive. really interesting about like yeah going into investing and more like building your wealth for the future and not just relying on say like an income and you know, something like that. I've always believed in a, a great line <clears throat> that my wife taught me Maureen uh, but she quoted William Blake once and she said she said uh, Blake once said without controversy there's no progress and that's in many ways the relationship I've got with Paul, the relationship I've got with Moran as well. Um, in relation to Moran, I always say, you know, um, um, I, she actually decided to become my life coach, even though I didn't even know I needed one. Um, and, uh, but without her looking at me the way a, a Labrador watches a sausage at a barbecue, finding out what I'm doing wrong and actually telling me how I can fix myself up, um, I wouldn't be here today. So that's why I always say behind every successful man's a very surprised woman. 